Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 349, The Country House. I am so sorry to be late. This was meant to be last weekend after all, but I was having too much fun on my last and final essay, when I say fun. On which, by the way, a quick advert for the continuing education department at Oxford University, whose company I have enjoyed since 2018 on a much interrupted English social and local history course and with whose company I am now forced to part, having done said final essay. They run a series of residential mixed and purely online courses, long and short, all levels across a wide range of subjects, and are in the very best tradition of continuing education. Check them out at conted.ox.ac.uk. That's conted.ox.ac.uk. I know for sure you will find something that inspires you. And, like Terminator, I'll be back. There is then the poll and prize draw for the English Revolution. Because I have been rubbish. But you now have until Friday the 29th of July to make your entry because I have been so rubbish. And I will announce the result on the 31st of July, as I'll explain in a mo. The poll has been a hoot. May I just say, you have all behaved according to stereotype. Seriously, how does anyone get through the day without a good bit of stereotyping? You roundheads, you were there early, straight in there, courage for your convictions, this is the way it is and must be. Club men then came in a bit of a mass after that. Come on guys, let's have a pint, pint of chat, work this all out, let's play arrows instead. And now finally, there's been a mass of cavalier votes. 
I suspect because you lot have only just got out of bed after a big sesh last night, have a sore head and realised it's time to do something at last. Classic War of Three Kingdoms stuff. Final announcement. There will be a new season of History and Technicolor from Wolf and I. We found making the time difficult, so we decided to record six episodes ahead of time before we started it. So we've been doing that since St George's Day, would you believe? In the schedule, for sure, we have, in this order, Cromwell from 1970 featuring Robert Morley eating chicken legs, Rob Roy, 1995, so much better than Braveheart, The Favourite, 2018, an absolute hoot, In Cold Blood, 1967, Dark, True Crime, Lagan, 2001, anti-imperial cricket singing and dancing, Gladiator, 2000, On My Signal, Unleash Hell. Might do Death of Stalin to boot. We start on the 31st of July. So, since I have absolutely zip written for the history of England in the bank as I write, I will release Cromwell simultaneously on the History and Technicolor and History of England feed and will make the winners of the English Revolution Prize draw announcement there. How does that sound? Alice Clark? Okay, onward. This is then the second of our Brace of Buildings episode. One more of these folks, and then we'll be into Charles I, never fear, and you can start swashling your buck with Buckingham. Last time we dealt with merchants, farmers, yeomen, the sort of better off but not necessarily grand, the middling sort of town and country as it were. This time around I think we'll start at the top-ish with magnates and peers and come downwards and we can meet in the middle with the gentry. Now, where I thought I should probably start is with the late medieval country house. I do this on two bases. Firstly, because as we know, us history lovers, how can you know where you are going if you don't know whence you came? Secondly, for less noble and artistic reasons, because I have sort of done it before in a member Shedcast series about Margaret Beaufort, and I'm a big believer in the publisher's concept of reuse of assets. Margaret Beaufort, of course, had a wild life, and that is no lie. You all know the outline, I think. Keen to rehabilitate her son Henry under the Yorkist Edward IV, determined to bring down the usurper Richard III and replace him with her son, in which aim she was successful. Despite the precariousness of her life at various points, Margaret was nonetheless a very grand person indeed, with vast tracts of land. During her seemingly very successful marriage to Henry Stafford, she had a grand palace at Woking, the ground plan of which has been largely understood. She then lived at the Stanley Palaces of Knowsley and Latham in the north, when married to Stanley. And when free, and her lad was kinging away, Henry repaid her dedication and love by effectively making her a regional satrap in the Midlands at a palace of Collie Weston in Northamptonshire, about which we know little, though I believe excavations are going on. So, to demonstrate the late medieval magnate's palace, it is to Woking we must go, which would probably actually have been the least grand. The context is, though, it is Henry VII's time that we begin to trace the fundamental transformation from a medieval state run by regional magnates to a modern state run by the centre and a court-based aristocracy. Margaret's world was the late medieval one. Incidentally, there is a ground plan of Working Palace on the website post 
for this episode, so go and check it out. There's an article. One of her responsibilities, and that of her lord, was an, an estate owner, the head of a large household and a major, major concern and sort of business in the countryside. So they needed to welcome great men and women from her wider affinity. They needed to welcome courtiers from Westminster, and in her case, no lesser on one occasion than the king himself, Edward IV. So, the Staffords had a large standing household and a big retinue of liveried men-at-arms. But at the heart of their house was a small group of crucial rooms and buildings utterly fundamental to the exercise of medieval lordship in society. At the centre was the Great Hall, the Lord's Hall, a big hall to entertain her tenants and household, to awe them with her power and wealth, and provide the hospitality and maintenance absolutely expected of a great lord and lady. There would have been a church and the farm and estate buildings separately. So the Great Hall was where Margaret and her husband surrounded themselves with their household, tenants and estate workers. The hall had to be very grand, decked with finery, at the main meal of the day, which was around 11, all of them would eat together with minstrels and trumpets, the rich hangings that shouted the greatness and magnificent hospitality of this noble family to all their duly grateful people. The kitchen buttery and estate buildings might not necessarily be connected in the same building as the hall. They might form a cluster outside. I should make a point about the medieval household too, to be a household officer in the household of a great lord was, for want of a better phrase, a great thing. The steward and major officials would be significant landowners in their own right. Holding such a role was a route to fame and fortune in late medieval England. You were not just a functionary. The typical physical arrangement was around a large courtyard with components of the house arranged around it, all accessed from a gatehouse, so the model was still very much inward-looking, in the shape of a castle, as it were, with memories of the defensive design of a castle. But by the 14th century, the old keep as the centre of the castle, the old Norman keep kind of thing, had died, largely because military architecture had moved on and made it obsolete, using curtain walls instead. Anyway, keeps were cramped and dark and dank and uncomfortable, they had little private space for anyone. They were just not great places to live unless you were worried about being hacked to death in an idle moment. If you were worried about that, they were great. Although the massive tall keep had died, one of its salient features does not. That of the tall massiveness of it all. Because that was the very grandness that your magnate liked because they loved showing off. Just so you didn't miss how terribly, terribly important they were. The super-grand Duke of Buckingham's Thornbury Castle was festooned with towers, impressing the world with their exceptional height, with large windows offering a light, airy environment inside, with magnificent views outwards. It was an expression of power, wealth and luxury. The kitchen was often separate to the hall. It was a fire hazard and it was best kept away and it produced vast quantities of smoke and smell. The people who worked there had to deal with stifling heat. One of the rules that survives is one banning nakedness in the kitchen as the workers sweated away, and that's a genuinely horrid thought. Serving the kitchen were pantry and buttery. 
beer was brought up from the cellar direct to the buttery, and then from the pantry, the yeomen distributed bread, and from the buttery, they distributed beer and candles. Beer was distributed to everyone at the feast, wine just to the high table, and was placed on a cupboard rather grandly by the dais, a cupboard still being a board for cups, a trestle table at this point. Although the trend was resisted, the pantry and the buttery, which lay between the kitchen and the great hall, was beginning to come a place where servants had meals like breakfast, rather than using the great hall all the time. On rare occasions, Margaret and Henry might take their ease in the great chamber. Originally, this was a sort of private sitting room for Lord and his guests. The great chamber was beyond the end of the great hall, at least a floor up, often above a room called the parlour on the ground floor, which we'll come to. From the 14th century, to the disgust of the writer William Langland, it became increasingly common for the Lord and his immediate household to seek the privacy of the great chamber away from the sweaty masses. In 1362, Langland spat angrily. Wretched is the hall, each day in the week, there the Lord and Lady liketh not to sit. Now have the rich a rule to eat by themselves, in a privy chamber, for a poor man's sake, or in a chamber with a chimney, and leave the chief hall that was made for meals for men to eat in. So, despite the appeal of tradition and lordship, here we have a process that will simply become more and more marked over time, one of retreat, a centrifugal force pulling the lord and family away from their tenants and servants. The comfort of the great chamber was helped in the 14th century with the arrival of brick as a cheap, common and fashionable building material, which we talked about last time. It allowed many more chimneys in the houses, both grand and more modest, transformed the atmosphere of the smaller rooms. Some chimneys were absolutely humongous, giving places for guests to actually draw apart and have a chat in even. The great chambers also began to have very grand windows, bay windows or oriel windows often, Again, they created more space, light, comfort and privacy. By Margaret Beaufort's days, it is more than likely that Margaret and her hub would have had their main meal away from their household in the great chamber. The ceremony of the event, though, very much remained despite eating separately. Eating was a very formal thing indeed. You had to make an event of it. In the chamber, a strict hierarchy applied. If you were invited to eat there, you were either a guest or an important member of the household. It was a signal honour to be invited. Originally, the great chamber would have contained the Lord's bed too, for here was often where he slept and slept with his immediate servants. And the boards and the trestle table for meals were temporary affairs arranged and set up for the feast, taken down when all was done. But the grander you were, the earlier the great chamber became purely for eating and entertainment rather than sleeping and living. And as part of that process of retreat, a suite of rooms then began to develop around the chamber for the use of the Lord and his immediate family. And at the same time, a separate suite of rooms might begin to appear to be provided for guests' lodgings. There might then also be a closet. Now, the closet was a really important room, not a place for mocks or buckets, but designed as the Lord's study, or the place where he met his great servants for really important discussions. Next, 
began to appear the privy chambers, which came to be where the Lord and the Lady had their private bedrooms as they further retreated, and the great chamber became devoted to eating and sleeping for the closest personal servants and household. There's one more room to mention which will become very important in years to come, which is the parlour. Often on the ground floor, below the great chamber, set behind the dais end of the great hall. The origin of the parlour is monastic. This was the room where visitors from outside could come in and meet and talk with the members of the monastic community, hence the name from parler, of course, to talk in French. Later in the 15th century and beyond, to get away from ceremony and formality and gain once more in privacy, to retreat further from the public eye, the Lord and his family might actually eat in the parlour away again from the public. Absolutely finally, Woking has an interesting feature. It has a smaller second hall with its own set of chambers. Now that's weird. What is going on here? How many houses did Margaret lead for crying out loud? Well, this was provision for visits of the very grand so that they could have their own mini great hall and their own lodgings and chambers. Now that does seem a little profligate, to be fair. A second house, just on the off chance someone drops in. But when not expecting visitors, this small hall would get used as well. It would probably be made available for the smellier farm workers, you know, those working with dung, to keep flies out of the great hall. One more very popular feature to mention at Woking, outside this time. Many houses also had a deer park. Deer parks were super popular in medieval England, mainly laid out between 1200 and 1350. And at one stage, there were 5,000 of them across Britain, most now lost. The deer park was the ultimate expression of power and wealth. They required license from the king to be laid out, and economically they were almost completely wasted space. Certainly they might employ some rangers and labourers, but substantial land was taken out of productive agriculture and rental income. Though of course the land they occupied was often not the finest of agricultural land. A deer park was usually enclosed by an earth mound topped off with an impalement, a wall of split oak stakes, basically. This is the origin of the pale in Ireland. Pale, the enclosed park sort of thing. To a degree, deer parks were an expression of social climbing, an attempt by the nobility to ape the practice of the royal forests, a Norman import which, incidentally, the nobility and common people had many times kicked furiously against. They began to be broken up finally after the Civil War, destroyed and ploughed up for agriculture. Jolly old Cromwell, eh? Also, that has an effect on the status of Venice and all this deer parkness. So you might think deer would be an easily available meat for all. Deer all over the place. But sadly not. It was very much reserved for royalty and nobility. Presenting a buck was a great gift from noble to noble. Presenting a buck from peasant to peasant might have very nasty consequences indeed if the Lord and Lady found out about it. OK, so what do we have? A grand house with echoes still of the castle and community that originally spawned it. Gatehouse, courtyard, centred around a great, great hall. The centre of a broad and integrated estate-based community from peasant and farm workers to tenant and household. But creeping change, more sophistication more complexity, the beginnings of retreat to greater privacy by the great family and, to a degree, their household as well. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Well, let me whisk you forward a hundred years to the 1580s. And everything has changed after a hundred years of Tudor rule. The regions of England are no longer ruled by regional satraps and magnates, albeit they're still strongly influential. The day-to-day administration of the shires is conducted directly through the Crown with partnership of the local gentry and parishes as their agents. The nobility have become oriented in their search to give service, achieve advancement and patronage around the court and the Crown. All those medieval retinues with bully boys in red and green turning up at the capital for parliaments and taking the place over and beating each other up, they're outlawed now and have been for quite a while. Houses and households of the magnates have changed too in line with society. But, before we go on, a note of caution. Things change slowly and some people are a bit behind the times, some people a bit ahead of the times. So someone should have read out of the textbook about Tudor England to explain about all these changes to the Earl and Countess of Derby, for example, the Stanleys. Even in 1580, they come across as the head of a thoroughly medieval magnate family and community. They continue to have a massive household, 115 to 114 of them, would you believe? Their household was still run by very high-status families, so their steward himself was still a major landowner. Their clerk controller was a member of the gentry as well. The family moved between their two major estates, and when they were down at court, they decamped to London again with a substantial following. London itself, growing like Topsy it might be at this stage, but it was still festooned with gated and walled manors, just like in the country. These big households were generally becoming smaller, though. Household officials began to become more functionaries rather than gentle landowning families. But it's well into the 17th century before that's the absolute rule. So, you know, note of caution time, Grey areas, gradation, evolution, not a hard, fast finish and start thing. Changing society demanded a changing household and grand house designed around them. The impact of the Renaissance fed through as well, so you could no longer be a warlike, illiterate bruiser as a lord that liked people beating people up. You had to know your classics, and you had to make sure everyone knew that you knew your classics. So your love of and expertise in classicism was reflected in the design of your house. Order, proportion, they were now the order of the day. Structure, hierarchy, order, that was the thing. The frontage of new houses were almost always strictly symmetrical. Also, allegorical devices and secret codes. Those were Renaissance things too. The Elizabethans absolutely loved that sort of thing. So back to the Tresham family again and their triangular lodge, which is a sort of stopping place for the hunt. Everything there is in threes. Three walls, all the decoration in threes. I went to see it with the aged M, and it's absolutely mad. And to be honest, subtlety is clearly not so highly valued. 
It's a pretty obvious Catholic statement of the Trinity, but then you know, if you have a message, important to punch the bruise. Inside the changing structure of society, the growing separation between classes is underway and it's the hall that begins to feel the heat and get the bullet. Houses still have a great hall, still seen as essential. It is now the big entrance room and the servant and the household's common room. On occasion it might be a place for plays or feasts because of its size. But the main centre of the house now, the main centre for ceremony, was instead that great chamber. So I'm going to throw a lovely quote at you here, dripping with all the glorification of nobility, which now seems so hard for us to understand and so strange. The world really was different. These lords and ladies were sort of mini-gods. So here is a set of regulations from 1604, talking about the great chamber. In that place there must be no delay, because it is a place of state, where the Lord keepeth his presence, and the eyes of all the best sort of strangers be their lookers-on. Herein the gentleman usher is to take special care, for their credit's sake and the honour of the place. Isn't that delicious? The magnate and family was also very conscious and meticulous about how people would get to the great ceremonial and gorgeously decked out chamber. The journey must have the right impact, not just the arrival. It was a sort of ceremonial route, and since the chamber was on the first floor rather than the ground, that meant your staircase now had to be doing a lot of work for you. So the old, grotty, medieval, closed-off staircase disappears to be replaced by open-well staircases because that allows you to do a lot of time and effort spent on decorating the ceiling so, you know, breath gets taken away when you look up. There's also a bit of a pash for lovely wooden staircases, interestingly, and fantastically carved. So I went to Blickling a short while ago with the Wild Boys, which has a lovely example. Once they got up to the great chamber, feasting your eyes on bosses under the gaudy canopy. The social distinctions of the high table and the honoured guests there was maintained against the tables in the main body of the hall. The Lord might well indeed sit in state. Indeed, the Lord and Lady might well sit in state. And that meant sitting underneath a canopy, would you believe, which I think sounds magnificent. And, you know, I think I might buy a nice bit of cloth to string over my chair at supper and sit in state and see how that goes down with the fam. The social gradation on the tables in the main body of the hall were also retained. So I say main body of the hall, I mean main body of the chamber, as it were. We're talking about the chamber here. So in reducing grandness, the further away you were from the great family, the less grand you were. So have I told you about above and below the salt? I'm getting a feeling of deja vu. So sorry if I have. And if you're rolling your eyes night now, not again, sort of thing. So I always thought the expression below the salt meant you were dead and buried, either physically, emotionally or politically speaking, you know, buried below the salt. But it does not. Apparently, it's a thing. A big pot of salt was placed in the middle of the lower tables. Those of higher social distinction were closer to the Lord and Lady, and they were above the salt, closer to the Lord and Lady than the salt pot. Those of lesser distinction were below the salt. Good golly, not precisely sure what defined the positioning of the salt. Some, of course, were not considered grand enough to eat with the household at all and could instead be told to eat with the steward. And if you were worried about social rank, that could be most distressing. 
Dining was so important that the great chamber might sometimes be called the dining room, but it was also used for masks, dancing, playing games and that sort of thing. And you might remember me telling you about the void, when you have a nibble in the banqueting turret right up top, while the void of fun and laughter was filled with the clearing of dinner. But now there appears another room for the use of the great family, withdrawing chambers off the great chamber. It's not the Downton Abbey thing we're used to, i.e., you know, for women to withdraw to for a chat after supper so that men can talk about bottoms. It's a bedchamber with an attached little room for servants off it. But then it does come to be a very private room for eating and for very special, super special guests who are invited. Everything's about eating here, isn't it? It's a bit like the Queen's privy chamber sort of thing. You know, the room where only dudders might get invited for a quiet tete-a-tete. When not entertaining or feeding the troops, the parlour also becomes more important for more informal eating. William Cecil, super powerful man though he was, tended to eat with his immediate family in the parlour and used the great chamber just for special occasions. Really not quite sure how many rooms you really need for eating, but hey, one obviously just isn't enough. Parlours began to pr proliferate as well, so you might have a small, nice, neat, low-ceilinged winter parlour for when the weather closed in, and a bigger, grander affair for summer. There's one more development, and one more of the triumphs of the stately home. The Long Gallery. The Long Gallery started off as just a covered walkway, so that you could take the air, as it were, without getting your hair wet. But they end up as these fantastically decorated and appointed Long Galleries with furnishings along the way to look at as you stroll, and the pictures and portraits of your ancestors to inspire and promote the glory of your dynasty. The Long Gallery becomes a massive status symbol. Really, darling, you don't have a Long Gallery? Well, can't be anyone until you have a long, gorgeous gallery. And there's no denying they really are lovely, and for me, they're usually the thing that makes a stately home stately. Well then, let's talk about Bess of Hardwick now, shall we? I mean, why not? Silly not to. Should have done so well before now, to be honest. Elizabeth Hardwick's family had moved to glorious Derbyshire in the 13th century, I think, and by the end of the 15th had risen to become gentlemen yeomen or minor gentry families. Bess married four times in her life and ended up, by the time she died in 1608 at 81 years old, as Countess of Shrewsbury and the richest and most influential woman in England. It was partially the marriages that enriched her, of course, but Bess was also a force of nature, hard-headed, a consummate businesswoman who frequently had to fight very hard to hold on to her inheritance after her husband's died and who gave the Earl of Shrewsbury a life of hell, I suspect. Bess was a great builder and two of her estates are absolutely at the heart of any pilgrimage to stately homes set in the Derbyshire countryside, Chatsworth and Hardwick Hall. Now, when I were a lad, my mate Charlie's folks had a tea towel with a big picture of Hardwick Hall, along with the legend, Hardwick Hall, more glass than wall. That simple rhyme has poisoned my life, gentle listener. It is impossible for me now to hear the word hall without muttering more glass than wall. As in, I don't know, Stoke Row Village Hall, more glass than wall. I call down the vengeance of the gods and the nymphs of the forest upon it. I curses it, precious, I curses that towel, spawn of Sauron. However, it neatly encapsulates what is the iconic prodigy house of Elizabeth in England, Hardwick Hall, 
and a site that encapsulates the transformation of these big houses in this period. These halls have now completely forgotten their defensive past. That's all done with. Bess and her master surveyor and mason Robert Smithson created a building on a much smaller, neater footprint than the great medieval houses. Proportional, symmetrical. It banished the old courtyard structure. They are outward-looking and indeed had so much glass that your best defence in case of attack would be to run like bilio. They had magnificent staterooms, arranged vertically over many floors, and the towers pull your eyes up to the sky. One little wrinkle a lecturer pointed out to me once was that the Elizabethans and Jacobeans loved their roofs. They frequently headed up to the leads to have a look at the world from their magnificent houses. All now is symmetry, proportion, and also a house that requires a much smaller household to maintain it and the family living there. The kitchen, hall, chapel, great chambers, lodgings, they're all integrated into one floor pan. There are no more medieval clusters and outbuildings and all that sort of thing. The layout is in typical Elizabethan fashion, which is in itself a hidden device, so it forms two interconnecting Greek crosses, apparently. More than one eye was given to impressing the natives and grand visitors, so the house design delivers a grand processional route from the kitchen, through the hall, up an extraordinary stone staircase to arrive at the huge high great chamber at the top of the house. Bess had no intention of hiding her lighter under a bushel or indeed any form of other rural agricultural product. Bess's approach to building new at Hardwick in the 1590s was also symbolic because she already had a manor house there but rather than extend and improve the old manor house she said what? Nah, that old thing? Nah, just leave it there. Build something new. The ruins of the old remains, largely forgotten and lumpen. Elizabeth's reign was marked by the building of many of these great prodigy houses, as we call them, and Elizabethan's mean-as-a-mouse-shit approach to life was part of that, so unlike her dad, she didn't build or buy big houses all over the place. She preferred to use other people's. And so we get this tradition we re referred to before of courtiers vying madly to get Queenie to visit their place. Christopher Hatton spent a fortune building Holdenby Hall and he bought Kirby Hall. And I don't believe Queenie ever visited, which must have been really annoying. Although thankfully for Hatton's peace of mind, Charles I did visit Kirby and lugged it. The cost was enormous anyway if she did visit. More than one noble family was ruined as a result. She was a frequent visitor to Cecil's masterpieces at Burley and Tybalt's. There are many others, actually, and I can't list them all. And after all, your podcast is not a visual medium. But there are a few pics on the website again if you manage to get there. A personal take. I'm a man for your Gothic and your Elizabethan and Jacobean architecture. Personally, I think those are the best. Once the Palladians get going and we hit the 18th century, it all becomes hideous ostentation and pomposity. And English architecture is pretty much ruined. And Wren and the Baroque. I mean, what was going on there? For shame. Obviously, this is a personal view, since I know exactly as much about the principles of architecture as might be written on the inside of a ping pong ball. We had one more job to finish off with how the gentry reacted to all this great rebuilding going on around them at other social levels. Just to inflict on you a piece of pop sociology, I was amused to learn that a higher percentage of English than ever 
identify now as working class. 79% of us, apparently, I think was the figure. These days, we like to emphasise our down-to-earth roots. I had to struggle, dragged up. I was lived in a shoebox, had to lick, roared clean, with dung. This was not the case in Jacobean England. If you were a husbandman, you wanted to be a yeoman. If you were a yeoman, you wanted to be a gentleman. If you were a gentleman, you wanted to be a fully paid up member of the gentry. If you were in the member of the gentry, you wanted to be a knight, and so on. Everyone tried to get a little bit of the habits and attitudes of the lords and lady in their lives. It was helped by the fact that unlike France, these things were not well defined. So, if you looked like a gentlewoman, if you walked like a gentlewoman, and if you smelled like a gentlewoman, then you shall go to the ball cinders and be a gentlewoman. Even if behind your back people might say she had nothing when she came here. Have I ticked enough cultural stereotypes for you all now? Sorry, sorry, sorry. However, these folks faced constraints in their attempts to keep up with the Joneses, social and economic ones. The houses they built and extended were rather restricted by their means, as you'd expect. The gentry was the social class that really had done best from the long 16th century. Not only were they landowners, but they were the biggest winners from the dissolution of the monasteries, which spread the excessive wealth of the medieval church much more widely and society, and which I maintain stoutly against all outrage, was a jolly good long-term decision well made to the benefit of the English. Some at the upper end were pretty hench, and they were able to build houses almost indistinguishable from the houses of the nobility. As an example, let me tell you about Edward Phillips. Phillips came from a Somerset family, mainly making his money from farming with pasture and as a grazier, but his mum was the daughter of a wealthy merchant. Thomas Phillips was in the employ of Thomas Cromwell, and the resulting contacts and connections at court of such a powerful man was the making of this up-and-coming new man. Allowing him to get his children a good education, Edward therefore got himself into the inns of court and became a successful lawyer. He was connected at court with courtiers and even James I. By 1601, Edward had used all his connections and influence to acquire a bit of cash and many pretensions. And so he built a grand house, Montacute House, to announce his arrival in society. The house is on the now classical Elizabethan constrained footprint. It is all symmetry. On the third floor, it now sports the all-important gallery. It's glazed throughout and is covered with clever symbolic sculptures. There is a picture on the tiresomely frequently mentioned webpage at thehistoryofengland.co.uk. It is thoroughly English in style, but critically, since Phillips was often at court, he was connected with the Italianate and Dutch styles, which are reflected to some degree in the design. Montacute, then, is at the top end of the gentry. It's a new build, shows awareness of the latest architectural influences, but does not quite have the expense and extent of a prodigy house like Burley, Kirby or Hardwick. Phillips had acquired another attribute of the nobility he so admired, a thoroughgoing ocean level of financial incontinence. Despite all his financial success, he died with a stonking debt of 12,000 quid, the equivalent of 1.9 mil. Such is the cost of social climbing. Be warned. Most of the gentry classes didn't quite have the nuclear level of pretensions of the likes of Phillips, nor did they have the money, nor, interestingly, did they really have the education and culture. They were well behind the latest thinking on style and design. Posh, though the gentry were, 
For the most part, their lives were very firmly rooted in their locality, and the idea of a Dutch gable may well not have crossed their mind or the latest word in classical sculptural trickery. Their horizons mainly extended to telling their parish and region just how important they really were. So, economics, aspiration, education, culture, all conspired to mean that the gentry usually extended what they had rather than doing what Phillips did and starting afresh. They tended to use what they had available locally. That might be the most commonly available materials, timber and brick, but it might include other locally available stuff. So, for example, Laycock Abbey, which essentially half-inch they dissolved monastery and turned into a house, QED. Or if you'd been lucky enough to have a dissolved monastery in your neck of the woods, why not go and help yourself to a nice bit of stonework? Such stonework integrated into vernacular buildings is a very common feature of English towns and villages. My example for this sort of thing is the absolutely extraordinary confection that is Little Morton Hall in Cheshire. The origins of the family of William Morton in the village of Little Morton seem to be traceable to the 13th century, until the house started to be built from the early 16th century, coming to its glorious fruition around 1610, with the hands of various members of the family in it. By then, they held a substantial estate of 1,300 acres, but the long history of the Mortons in Little Morton very much speaks to the essentially local flavour of the gentry. They would finally give up and hand it over, but not until after the National Trust had arrived and not until 1938. So they had it for quite a while. Little Morton Hall is a Christmas cake, composed on constant extension as the latest idea hit town. Oh, better have one of those too. Add it in, add it in. It is built of traditional materials, timber, wattle, brick. There's no fancily sculpted stonework that would have cost too much. It is an architectural mess. No symmetry, bits stuck on as need to be like an airfix thing. And it is alarmingly top-heavy. It looks as though if the big bad wolf came along, one brisk puff would have the place on its backside. This is because the pièce de résistance is a whopping great gallery perched on the top third floor, like the top deck of a cruise liner or, in Bob Dylan parlance, a mattress perched on a bottle of wine. Essentially, it kind of ticks all the boxes. It's got a great hall, parlour, withdrawing rooms, long gallery. But because it's been an evolution, it contains old elements of late medieval origin too. Courtyard, gatehouse. There's a layout of it as well as a pick on the resources page. Did I mention I'd done an article on the website, thehistoryofengland.com? Hmm. OK, that is where we must leave things, everyone. I hope you've enjoyed this rather different series of episodes, taking us away from the normal political run of things and the great folk. Possibly, and indeed probably. It has made you nostalgic for them and you're looking for a return to the cut and thrust of politics. Well, need to draw breath next week, as I said, but then, gentle listeners, we will have a start of the Martyr Monarch, or the Man of Blood, depending on your point of view. Charles I and his reign of chaos now that we have the historiography all clear in our minds. Thank you then for your kind attention. Thank you mightily for taking part in the poll. Loads of you did so. It's a real joy. I've really loved it. And I shall enjoy giving away the prizes with many, many, many thanks again to Simon Hall of Hall's Hammered Coins for his generosity and his great collection of coins for sale, to which there is again a link on the website. Thanks again then, everyone. Thanks for comments and all that. Good luck and have a great week.
Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 